The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am very pleased to be joined again by Luke Thompson, who is a political strategist. And we are going to be asking what's going to happen in the midterms. This is about part four uh, of Americano's What's Going to Happen in the Midterms. And Luke, we've spoken to you before but since the last time we spoke about the midterms, quite a lot's happened, obviously. And there was this story over the summer, we kept being told, we kept reading and hearing that Joe Biden was on a hot streak. The Republicans were suddenly in trouble because the American public were horrified by the overturning of Roe v. Wade and their pro-life extremism. And the polls certainly did suggest that that was not entirely untrue. They did enjoy a swing in the polls. They seemed to have a little bit of momentum. But as far as I can see, the latest polls suggest, do they not, that it's swinging back towards the Republicans now. Is that right? Well, I I think it's certainly true that recent polling would give any partisan Democrat a heartburn. There's a temptation to believe that polling reflects entirely a change in public sentiment, but oftentimes underlying shifts on the margins of public sentiment are changing who is responding to polls. And so that can have an exaggerated effect in terms of, of where different political leaders stand at any given time. In the United States, as one gets closer to Election Day, the polls come in greater and greater conformity with where the final ballot winds up being, with a few caveats that we can get into. There's a question there, which is, is it that voters are starting to get to know the different candidates and thus express their underlying preferences? That's certainly part of it, but a very, very large part of it seems to be what we would call complier artifacts, uh, who is answering polls and who is not. And without speaking out of school, based on internal polling that I have seen and discussions I've had with other Republican political consultants who do a lot of polling, we have reason to believe that the complier artifacts that have been bedeviling polling at least since 2014 have gotten even worse in this cycle. Um, Part of what's going on, it appears, is that for the first time, we're seeing a subset of voters treat answering polls as a form of political action. And that's really dramatically skewing things in ways that are difficult to pick up just based on demographics and overall vote propensity, party registration, etc. What that Explain means... Explain that briefly, Luke. So are they, are they actively lying or are they trolling? What, what are these... No. Since, since the 1990s, response rates to polls, which is, is the way we describe what percentage of people contacted, pick up the phone and go through the process of, of completing the poll, have collapsed from you know 20 to 25% in the good old days down to well below 1%. In the early 2000s, there was a great deal of concern that as compliance rates fell, the reliability and representativeness of samples would fall as well. 
And initially that didn't seem to happen. And no one is really entirely sure why. It just seems that compliance more or less reduced uniformly across the population. As cell phones proliferated and people began to cut their landlines, the sampling effects again became a problem because you had groups of people who simply didn't have landlines and were reachable. But that was solvable by calling people on cell phones. And that sort of contact approach is diversified now to texting people, to reaching out to people via matched email addresses. All of these present their own problems and challenges from a statistical standpoint. But actually getting in front of the people that you want to get it to get in front of has been a problem that if, if it hasn't been solved, pollsters have taken it very seriously. What we're running into now is a more bedeviling issue and is not easily solved. And that is that the wrong kind of Democrats and the wrong, and, and it's all Democrats right now, this may change in the future and Republicans may mirror this phenomenon, but the wrong kinds of Democrats are answering surveys. In the past, we never had as pollsters to stratify our sample, which is to say balance across, you know, one balances across lots of different considerations, geography, party, race, etc., right? Gender, age. Education has been an issue as educational polarization is picked up in the United States that people balance on as well. You know, union household used to be one, etc. But now we're seeing really major distortions in who's answering polls based on their primary vote history on the Democratic side. Democratic super voters, I mean, really hard, partisan, committed Democrats. I'm not even talking about just Democrats that vote straight party Democrat in every election. I'm talking about people who are hyper-engaged, they're hyper-media consumers. These folks are answering the sur surveys every single time they get called. And as a result, especially when you have underlying compliance rates below 2%, it doesn't take a huge uptick in this group of people, which is small, to skew a lot. And, you know, we're seeing Democratic super voters make up up to 2x as much of the, of the response pool as they should. And as far as I'm aware, none of the public pollsters are, are stratifying based on primary vote history. I, I don't really think anyone is doing it in a systematic way. But it's really jumping off the, the spreadsheet at me and at a few other people in a way that, say, educational polarization did starting in about 2016. The polls in the summer were probably artificially inflated for Democrats and especially Democrats who were pretty excited about what Biden was up to because they're high information, high engagement, Democratic activists, essentially. And as the rest of the electorate has awakened and been willing to take polls, admittedly still at a very variable rate, right? Republicans don't answer as much as Democrats across the board, all things being equal. And then differences in the coalition mean that Republicans are even less likely to get on the phone. Nonetheless, I think less than seeing real movement, you've just seen a more reflective set of people. Still not reflective, but a more reflective start to answer the phone. And I mean, I think it would be true to say, though, that if the economy is the most pressing issue facing voters, and it is, that's clear, the Biden administration did appear to have, I'm sure you're going to say, and you'll, you'll be right to say, uh, they weren't actually wins. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act didn't do anything to reduce inflation. Uh, and the student debt relief program has its own controversies. But the both those measures at least spoke to voters about financial issues. And they did it seemed, enjoy some bounce in the polls as a result of them. Yeah, I, I think part of what happened, and this is important in politics, so I don't want 
I don't want to diminish it on its face. But, you know, Biden had seemed to be listless, seemed to be inert, even to his own base voting supporters. And so a lot of these very active high information people were precisely the kinds that were saying, I don't like Joe Biden. I'm mad at Joe Biden. Joe Biden sucks now. And so giving his base a couple of wins, I think seemingly motivated by concerns about a primary challenge in 2024, brought those people back on side. So yes, they were able to point to some legislative achievements. Those legislative achievements did bring highly engaged members of the Democratic base back in, but at a very considerable political cost. When inflation ticked up, despite the Inflation Reduction Act, that did serious damage to the credibility of the White House, already seriously damaged, not helped by the bizarre yarn spinning of the White House press secretary. And then additionally, as voters learned about the particularities of what was in both the American Rescue Plan and the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, people really turned against both of those bills. And you see that in in the public polling, where Democrats consistently trail Republicans by solid double digits on when people are asked whether or not which party is focused on the economy or what each party is focused on. You know, Democrats are seen as focusing on January 6th, environmentalism and abortion, and Republicans are seen as focusing on inflation, jobs, and immigration and crime. And if you then ask the entire electorate and or focus on swing voters what they care about, they care about inflation, the economy and jobs, crime and immigration. So you always as a party want to have your issue priorities, what you're messaging on, look like what independents care about. It's a whole lot better still if independents identify you as caring about the issues that they also identify themselves as caring about. A factor that's always talked about is gas prices. Yes. And they did go down towards the end of the summer in September, and they've now gone back up again. Yes. How significant a blow is that to Biden's hopes or to the Democrats' hopes? I, I think it's it hurts Biden in the same way the Inflation Reduction Act's branding exercise hurt Biden, which is Biden was very, very willing to say, I get all the credit for gas prices coming down, but now that they're going back up, I get none of the blame. And that makes them look deceitful because they are being deceitful. There is a bigger, I think, latent danger to Biden in gas prices than, than his people even realize, which is, look, we are drawing down the Strategic Petroleum Reserve of the United States to a 40-year low. Biden has more or less come out and said he's going to drain it by the midterms to protect the Democratic Party. There's not enough oil in there to keep gas prices depressed, especially because producers are looking at that and saying, well, okay, they're flooding the market right now, but it's temporary, so we can forward project that prices are going to go back up and then more or less keep them up. I think you could see a Biden administration that essentially drains the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, gets very limited political upside from it, and then has to answer for the fact that they've fundamentally compromised a major strategic asset in the United States to try to save Democratic elected officials in the midterm where they get shellacked anyway. Yeah. You're pretty confident then about a shellacking, that would be fair to say. You know, I'm, I am a veteran of the 2014 cycle in the Senate where we picked up nine seats and, and won back a solid majority. No two cycles are alike, but I would say I'm feeling much more like 2014 than any of the intervening years. Because uh, Nancy Pelosi went on uh, Stephen Colbert's TV show a couple of weeks ago and said, we will win the House. I suppose that's just what politicians feel they have to say. 
But it felt to me, watching it the next day on, on Twitter, as a sort of gross hostage to fortune. <laughs> well, <clears throat> you know, Nancy doesn't have a whole lot to, you know, there's, there's not a lot of long-term planning. It never has been that much long-term planning going on with Nancy Pelosi. It's impossible to tell where, you know, gassing up her donors and, and brain-damaged supporters ends and uh, parroting her own delusions begins with her. Pelosi has been the leader of the House Democrats for 20 years. Over the span of that, she will have been in charge for eight. Both times, she will have had massive majorities and have squandered them both, only to see her party in wreckage. Pelosi is a severely limited political figure. She is very good at running her caucus and knowing where her individual members are. She has very limited political uh, communication skills and no brain for policy whatsoever. She's essentially what happens if you take a professional fundraiser who was born and raised in politics and turn her into the Speaker of the House, because that is essentially what happened. I, I wouldn't take what Pelosi is saying seriously, and I just question how much it even matters whether she means it sincerely or this is, is just willful obscurantism. Yes. Well, let's assume then that the House is a solid Republican win, possibly even a, a historic blowout. Yeah. On the House, before we talk about the Senate, it is worth noting that if Republicans simply win all of the districts that Donald Trump won, they still won't have a majority, which is why you're seeing things where, you know, the, the House committees and the major House Super PAC, the Congressional Leadership Fund, they're competing in seats that Joe Biden won by 5, 9, 11, 12 even, because one, they see the numbers moving there. But also, you know, the, the Democratic majority right now is extremely small, and redistricting has shuffled things a little bit. It was mostly a wash between the two parties. But the way the lines are drawn, Republicans will have to win a majority built on seats that Biden won, many of them very narrowly, many of them in, in suburban areas that are traditionally Republican and may come back to being Republican or may not stay, stay in the GOP column. But... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know whether we're going to see a pickup of nine seats or 15 seats or 25 seats or, or what, because those are some distinctive dynamics there. But you will you will see Republicans win the House. Well, let's move on to the Senate. Sure. I mean, the polls suggest it's pretty, the superficial polls suggest it's pretty tight. Can we run through some, I hate to sort of put you on the spot like this, but I'm going to. Can we run through some of the key battleground states and you can tell me which way they think they're going to you think they're going to go? Sure. I would say that the, the discussion about polling at the top of this episode really applies to Senate races where you get a lot of polling. House races, there's not as much public polling and they tend to be smaller samples and, and there aren't as many moving parts to consider. So the polling error in Senate races is, is an order of magnitude separate than what you're seeing in House races where there just isn't that much polling. But yeah. Do you want me to give a lay of the land? Yes, let's do a lay of the land. That'd okay. be great. Let me say up front, I run the super PAC supporting J.D. Vance in Ohio, so just full disclosure. Um, yeah, I, I work there. I, will, I, I won't editorialize about that race. What I'll say is there are – I think you can think about the map in four tranches. There are four seats that Republicans hold currently that they need to retain to have 50 seats in the Senate, which is where they are. There are sort of two of those, North Carolina and Ohio – I think you see the Republican candidate pulling away from the Democratic candidate. Then the next two, Wisconsin, where incumbent Senator Ron Johnson now also seems to be pulling away, but was had been hit very hard with negative advertising from national Democrats. 
He's running against the Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who has taken some very, very radical positions on, on crime and law enforcement. And the Democrats cleared the field for Barnes for inscrutable reasons, and it now seems to have been a catastrophic mistake because he's he's falling like a rock in water. The the fourth seat, the second in that second tranche of, of competitive current Republican holds would be Pennsylvania, where Mehmet Oz, the famous physician, is running against John Fetterman, the sort of, I think we, we could call aesthetically distinctive lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania who had a, a stroke shortly before his primary victory and essentially can't carry on conversations. Let's talk a bit about Fetterman, though, because sure. it's an extraordinary story. I mean, before his stroke, he was the subject of a large number of profiles in newspapers because he had this appearance, uh, as I put it in the magazine, he was the New York Times' idea of what a working man looks like. That's exactly right. And he had, you know, tattoos, hoodies, wore shorts, etc. But his politics, in fact, are pretty radically to the left of the American mainstream. Is that not right? That's correct. I would be more crude and, and frankly harsh with Fetterman than than you guys were. Fetterman is a is a middle-aged man-child who's never held a real job until he became lieutenant governor of the state and at that point just decided not to do his job and didn't show up very much. He has built a brand with coastal liberals putting on what amounts to a sort of minstrelsy act for the Midwestern working class. And this sort of blue-collar Al Jolson shtick that he's got going on is vulgar and it's it's gross. You know, my grandfather who didn't graduate from high school still had a necktie and wore it to important occasions. Yes. Fetterman has been propped up by vast sums of money coming from high socioeconomic status coastal white liberals who see in him a vision of an entirely progressive on cultural, social, and economic issues Democrat who can quote-unquote resonate with working people. Tim Ryan in Ohio has done this to some extent to the same way, and both of them have raised huge sums of money. Uh, Fetterman, I think about $40 million. Ryan, somewhere in the 30s. You know, Fetterman is an advertising product. He's a Harvard graduate who lived off his parents into his 40s. You know, his sister bought him a house for a dollar, right? Basically bought his house and gave it to him in exchange for a dollar. He is something of a slumlord. He owns a bunch of properties, none of which he paid for, all of which were given to him. He's a creep. And he holds positions on letting criminals out of prison that are to the left of the left in the Democratic Party. When he ran for lieutenant governor, he said one of his biggest priorities was letting murderers out of prison after they've reached an age where he's decided, based on some tenuous social science, that they're no longer a threat to the public. He believes in drug decriminalization, and he believes in no restrictions whatsoever on abortion, which is a view held only by the People's Republic of China and the Democratic Republic of North Korea. He's a lunatic. But do you think in a sort of bizarre, almost gonzo way, the stroke has actually helped him politically? Because even though it's become quite obvious that he can't answer questions, and it's ridiculous that nobody can question this without being called ableist and so on, it does put the Republicans in a difficult position of attacking a man who's suffering medically, and therefore he does elicit some sympathy. No, I don't think so. That might have happened had Fetterman been honest about what happened, but they attempted to hide his stroke in the waning days of the primary, saddling his party with him as a, as a crippled nominee. And so because he initiated the situation with deceit and has continued to lie throughout his nominal recuperation, whatever goodwill might have been there has, has been lost. And I think if you look at the polling... 
you know, Oz came out, his campaign came out and hit Fetterman really hard for being irresponsible, for being dishonest. And, and they didn't say you brought the stroke on yourself, but they said, look, you didn't follow your doctor's instructions. That was, that was clear. Fetterman admitted to that. You know, your diet is crap. You're massively overweight. You don't exercise. You're an irresponsible person. And then you lied about this thing happening. And then you lied about how severe it was. And the media panicked. They were like, wow, Oz is trying to commit suicide politically. This is nuts. Who thought this was a good idea? And if you look at that moment, the polls started to turn and Oz began to move the needle because he raised a fundamental question, which is, can this guy do the job? Can he do the job at all? And the answer to that is manifestly no. He cannot interpret the spoken word. He has to have things written down for him. Now, it's one thing if you have a geriatric incumbent senator with a well-established staff who is you know, going into his second infancy, and they can manage things. He's got a lot of built-up process and a lot of built-up prestige and a lot of built-up favors and seniority to cash in. There's a good reason for a state to think about re-electing someone like that. I've worked on a camp campaign once with a, a, a candidate who was beginning to age rapidly, shall we say. It's a totally different thing to say, look, let's take a guy whose politics are radical, who's way out of touch with the mainstream, and who literally is incapable of participating in the fundamental thing that the Senate, quote-unquote, the world's greatest deliberative body, does, i.e. deliberating, and let's make him the senator from a swing state like Pennsylvania. I think Oz was very smart to go hard on him. I think it raised the fundamental issue that, that Fetterman has, which is he's a fraud. This image, as I said, is a minstrel act. It's an offensive minstrel act, and it's built on this like deeply irresponsible personality who has achieved essentially nothing, done essentially nothing, but persuaded some coastal ad agencies to make him the face of middle America, which he does not represent at all. But Oz is a, is a flawed candidate himself in many ways. I mean, I know that you worked with his rival for the, for the nomination, and you oh, nearly yes. won that race. Yes, we, we, beat up, we beat up Oz pretty badly. I, I worked for the Super PAC supporting Dave McCormick, who ran against Oz and came in a very, very close second by a little under a 1,000 votes out of yes. well more than a million cast. But the word is that Oz's campaign has actually been more professional than perhaps the, the expert class have realized. I think that the Oz campaign, you know, when you're dealing with a first-time candidate, there will always be growing pains because there are just rhythms to campaigning that are, that are not natural, that have to be learned, that no one is born knowing how to do. You know, Oz comes with some unique assets. He has universal name ID. He is well-liked in communities that don't traditionally vote Republican because he's been a fixture on daytime television. He also is a gifted communicator on the small screen, which is a major focal point for American politics. He also happens to be very personally wealthy because he invented one of the first artificial heart valves. Many people think he's wealthy from being a TV celebrity. In fact, he was enormously wealthy before he ever went into television. So you know, he has, he has certain things going for him. But yeah, there have been some growing pains there. I think, I think anybody on that campaign would admit it. But to my observation, again, as someone who tried to beat them in the primary and came up just short, I feel like they've run a good campaign. And, and I think it's been sold short because there is a media echo chamber that doesn't appreciate Oz as, as a sort of communicator and as, as a trusted person among a general electorate. If you dig down into the polling crosstabs, most of Oz's political weakness comes from the fact that Republican voters are not consolidating in polls. 
frankly, some of the work that I did has something to do with that. We, we raised real questions about Oz's conservative credentials. Now, obviously, next to somebody like John Fetterman, it's not a question, right? Fetterman is a, a jailbreak liberal of, of the highest degree. But Oz, you know, I do think has been working simultaneously to appeal to the center and consolidate the Republican base. That's a very tricky place to be in. J.D. Vance in Ohio also came out of a very nasty contested primary. He had to do much the same thing as well. So those voters are going to come home. A way to think about it is if you think about the two candidates as two people climbing a tree, you know, John Fetterman is at the top of his tree and he's eaten all the fruit on the way up. Oz still hasn't gotten every piece of fruit on his tree. He hasn't, he hasn't climbed all the way to the top of his natural support, and he's just behind Fetterman in overall standing. So he's still got room to grow. I think that's going to be true for, for Beasley in, in North Carolina, Barnes in Wisconsin, Ryan in Ohio, etc. In these four states, those Democrats have hit their ceiling, and their ceiling is below 48%. And because it's below 48% in a two-man race, they're not going to win. What about uh, Georgia, which is another race that's been closely contested, and Herschel Walker? So I would put Georgia and Nevada into the next tranche. This would be tranche number three. And you might call it the majority maker and the spare. You have Democratic incumbents in these states who have raised lots of money, and they have variable political talent, but seem to be very, very seriously besieged. It it looks like Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada is going to lose to Adam Laxalt, Laxalt is a former attorney general in Nevada, extremely well-known in the state. His grandfather, Paul Laxalt, was a senator. His father, actually, Pete Domenici, was um, a senator from New Mexico. So he's the son and grandson of two senators, although he was not, he didn't have a relationship with Domenici growing up, and I don't think knew Domenici was his father until he was grown. Despite the fact that his grandfather was a senator, you know, he grew up sort of on the margins. You know, his mother was a single mother. He'd been born out of wedlock and was, is very much a sort of striver and, and, and high achiever. Um, certainly didn't hurt having the last name Laxalt, but you know, your typical grandson of a senator story doesn't really apply to, to Adam Laxalt. Turning to Georgia, there's, you see a slightly different scenario. You have a, an incumbent senator, Raphael Warnock, who won a special election to replace Johnny Isaacson, who, a retiring since deceased senator, and actually at one point, we lived in the same apartment building in Washington, D.C., really a lovely a lovely person of the sort of old school. Warnock has been in office for only two years. He's running against Herschel Walker, a Georgia football legend, an athlete, and motivational speaker and businessman. Both candidates have significant difficulties in their backgrounds. You know, Warnock, it has emerged, has been living off of a housing stipend paid by his church, even as a member of the Senate. And that church, as it turns out, owns um, some very, very low-income housing from which it has been evicting poor people during the pandemic. Warnock has also had a fairly a left-wing voting record and, and has a, a history, too, of, of some personal difficulty with his... He went through a very nasty divorce. His now ex-wife has claimed that he ran over her foot with a car and has claimed that he's a deadbeat husband who doesn't take care of his children. Walker, perhaps as a result of injuries sustained as a football player, he was a a running back, and that's one of the more, shall we say, beat-up positions in in American football. Imagine if you combined being a winger and a half prop, that would give you some sense of the kind of head blows that these guys take. 
Walker has gone through a very public struggle with mental illness in the past, in the 1990s and 2000s. He has a story, uh, a redemptive story of the strength of faith helping him to come to terms with mental illness and some medication and therapy also helping. But during that period of time, he was um, not what you would call a model citizen. He threatened one of his ex-wives with, with severe bodily harm. And reporting from the Daily Beast has suggested that he may have paid for an abortion in the past. A number of women have emerged indicating that they have illegitimate children with Walker. Walker has, by all accounts, been not much of a father to these children, but has supported them financially. Anyway, this is this is difficult for a for a candidate running on a pro-life platform, the, the accusation that he, he paid for an abortion in the past. His nomination was built sort of on the back of two things. One, his universal fame as a football star in the state of Georgia, and two, a close personal friendship with former President Donald Trump based in part on his time as a contestant on the TV show The Celebrity Apprentice. Trump endorsed Walker out of the gate. Other Republicans got on board pretty quickly after sort of meeting him, and, and he is a very charismatic speaker, and he has deep roots in the state. So Mitch McConnell endorsed him as well. But it's not clear whether or not the abortion scandal is going to, one, be believed by voters. Walker denies it. He denies it flatly across the board. He acknowledges that the woman who's accusing him is the mother of a child of his. He denies ever paying for an abortion. The Daily Beast, which broke the story, has a receipt for an abortion from the woman, and in a roughly contemporaneous period, a letter from Walker saying, get well soon, and then in a roughly contemporaneous period, a check for $700, which the woman claims the get well soon card and the check were to pay for the abortion and wish her a speedy recovery from it. Walker denies this. He says they're all unrelated. He was in a relationship with this woman at the time, and... He sent her a get-well card because she wasn't feeling well, and he sent her money because he would send her money. That's sort of his claim. It's unclear, one, if Georgia voters are going to believe the Daily Beast story or believe Walker, and two, it's not clear if they're going to care either way. You know, Warnock's campaign has been put a bit on the defensive over the COVID eviction stories, in part because they lied, and in part because it implicates you know, financial malfeasance by the church that he runs as he was a reverend before running for political office. And, you know... All of this is to say that there is a, a, a melange of character issues surrounding both of these candidates that can kind of be a take-your-pick for motivated reasoning by partisans on either side. I suspect when push comes to shove, Walker will win. It is likely that this race will go to a runoff in January. Georgia, uniquely among the states, has a 50% threshold for runoffs that then it decides not you know, four weeks later, but in the following year, in January. So this this very likely will be a race that will end in January 2023. But in the event the four races we've already discussed, plus Laxalt have won, Senate control will not be in question. It will just be a question about the size of the majority. So if you think about it, you've got the two hold seats, the two tighter hold seats. You have the majority maker and the, and the spare. Then we get into a bracket of what you might call the, the red wave seats. And these are three to four seats where you have quality Republican candidates running against Democratic incumbents who are at or below 50% in polling. These states are Arizona, Colorado, New Hampshire, and maybe Washington State. Uh, it's not clear that the Washington State race really is in that other cluster of, of those other three, but it could be. We'll see. Um, numbers are still what they are. 
Arizona, you have a very young candidate, uh, charismatic uh, technology investor named Blake Masters running against Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is, is best known for being an astronaut and for being the husband of former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who nearly died after being shot in a, in a mass shooting outside a strip mall during a, a public availability. A, a schizophrenic man killed, I think, two people, three people, and then shot her and a staffer, and still a horrible one of the more horrible instances of, of political violence in, in, in recent memory. Kelly has lots and lots of money in his campaign and on the outside. He's broadly popular, but recent polling has shown him dropping from uh, the relatively august perch of about 52% down to, I think I saw a poll yesterday that had him at 47. If he's below 48, he's, he's beatable. Masters can win. He is outspending Masters overwhelmingly. But I think, you know, the underlying partisanship of Arizona is very polarized and small swings one way or the other based on the national environment could change the landscape. Colorado, you have a building executive named Joe O'Day running against Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett is the stereotypical son of a senator. He is raised in Washington, D.C., is not particularly well known in Colorado. He routinely underperforms a replacement level candidate in Colorado. Six years ago, he underwhelmed on the ballot. And, and I think running against a totally underfunded candidate who no one had heard of. O'Day has put his own money into the race. He is an explicit moderate. Donald Trump actually attacked him on Truth Social yesterday or the day before. Colorado has been trending blue. Um, it has a popular Democratic governor in Jared Polis. Polis is one of the few Democrats who really push back against lockdowns and closing schools and things like that and, and has benefited politically as a result. Nonetheless, you know, I think O'Day is making it a fight. He's a good fit for Colorado, and he's running against a very weak Democrat in Michael Bennett. Uh, New Hampshire is an interesting case because you have two, two candidates that bring baggage into the race. Maggie Hassan is the incumbent Democrat who is not popular at all. She routinely polls with low favorability and was seen as a potentially very vulnerable Democrat going in. There was a toughly contested Republican primary between the state Senate leader Chuck Morse and retired General Don Bolduc. Bolduc is most famous for having ridden into Afghanistan on a horse with the Special Forces right after 9-11 and is a certifiable war hero, but he, he has been known to say inflammatory things in the past, including things that, that would be seen to be nods towards QAnon conspiracy theories. It's not really clear where the Granite State sits right now because Hassan is clearly vulnerable. She has very few fans, but Bolduc brings real baggage. I, think, I still think that's a winnable seat. I, I do think it's fair to say that Morse probably would have put, put the seat more in play uh, than Bolduc does. Nonetheless, Bolduc is popular with the Republican grassroots in a very real way and, and will, will energize the base. So we've done Colorado, we did New Hampshire, we did Arizona. The last state is Washington State. This is probably what the high watermark of a Republican Senate rate, uh, cycle this, this year would be. Tiffany Smiley is a nonprofit executive and uh, generally well-known figure in Washington politics. She's a moderate Republican, very good communicator on screen. Her husband was blinded while in the service, and uh, she set up a very successful foundation to work with disabled veterans. She's running against Patty Murray. Murray is an interesting candidate. She's a She's sort of a candidate from the older school. She has the admiration of Republicans for getting deals done, but she is solidly liberal and has voted the party line under the, the Biden White House. So she has, has sort of sacrificed her previous independence streak. You know, Washington has been hit pretty hard by the economic downturn, and Seattle 
hit very, very hard by some of the, the political unrest. Not as much as Portland and Oregon, but, but still has been hit pretty hard. Murray's been in the Senate for 30 years. She won more than 50% of the all-party primary this summer. She certainly looks to be in a strong-ish position, but she has been spending heavily on television since June and has not faced a real contest in a long time. So I think she's been flat-footed. Smiley has run a good race. Certainly, I don't think the odds are in Smiley's favor, but if we wake up on Wednesday morning and it looks like Republicans are going to win Washington State, we wouldn't think that, you know, rain was falling up and the sun was rising in the West and dogs and cats were getting together. It, it, would, be, it would be this sort of high watermark of where the party is. And, and certainly, I think the GOP lucked out getting a candidate of Smiley's quality. Well, that's all absolutely fascinating, Luke, and it's brilliant to be able to pick your encyclopedia brain about it. I just want to more broadly, you, going through those candidates, you list a lot of very troubled or troublesome candidates, very flawed candidates, which is a feature of American politics now. Uh, to what extent does it work that when the candidates are so sort of balmy, if you like, the midterms become more of a referendum on Biden than they normally would be? Or do they become less? I think the conventional wisdom would say that they become less. I don't know that any of these candidates have issues that put them beyond the pale. And that's true on either side of consideration. You know, even Barnes, who, you know, shortly after five police officers were murdered in Dallas, went on Russian propaganda television to decry American law enforcement, is still a statewide office holder in, in Wisconsin. You know, that may say things about how out of the mainstream the Democratic Party is lurching, but it doesn't. You know, nonetheless, these are not these are not people who have the sort of scandals around them that it would automatically end a end a career. I also think that because the Senate is tied 50-50 right now with the tie going to the Democrats because the vice president breaks ties in the Senate, the stakes of every single one of these seats can seem extremely high. And that bolsters partisan effects and probably downplays the ramifications of scandal. You know, I think if we were coming from a point of departure where Democrats had 55 seats to Republicans 45 seats, then scandal might be a bigger deal going either direction. But as it stands, this really does feel like a race, the races that are going to be decided based on a highly polarizing national environment. And I, I think that ultimately redounds to the advantage of Republicans. Joe Biden is unpopular. Joe Biden is seen as focused on the wrong things. Joe Biden is seen as incompetent. His approval ratings are falling again, such that even base Democrats are starting to disapprove of him. These are significant headwinds. These are headwinds, I think, more severe than what we saw in 2018 for Republicans. And I think there's a pretty good chance that if you're, if you're looking to bet a line, bet that, Republicans are massively going to overperform expectations. As a final point on that, the expectations, if you look at sites like 538, the expectations are, are, I think, being tilted towards Democrats based on that subject that we began the discussion with, which is what kind of primary supervoting Democratic activists are skewing polls. That population doesn't just respond to polls, they also donate a lot of money. As a Democratic consultant, a friend of mine said to me once, you have to understand this is dropping money in the plate at church and shopping on QVC combined for these folks. <laughs> and, and those donations are driven in large part by engagement they have with these candidates on media, MSNBC, CNN, etc. But also they tend to be heavily subject to polls, and, and these are polling data consumers. And so a sort of small market has popped up of extremely low quality, highly partisan polling 
that suggests that Democrats can win anywhere, right? Oh, this Democrat's going to win in Louisiana. This Democrat's going to win in, in Georgia. The guy running against Marjorie Taylor Greene in northern Georgia has raised gazillions of dollars, huge amounts of money, with no realistic hope of, of winning. You know, Evan McMullen, a nominal independent but actually a Democrat running against Mike Lee in Utah, has been cooking up and, and sending out polls suggesting he's within the, the low single digits, which is not the case. So the reason they do this is they're, they're looking to generate a demand signal that the, the activist class responds by flooding them with small dollars. That has two effects. One, it pushes them to take positions outside the mainstream that are much beloved of this activist class, positions that they underestimate the unpopularity of because it doesn't show up in polling because that same activist class is overweighted in the polls. And then the other thing that it does is that it creates bullshit polls. And these bullshit polls get factored into media aggregators, for polling aggregators, etc., because, frankly, these aggregators are either not sophisticated enough or not willing to kind of go through and do the, the detailed scut work required to decide whether or not these polls are credible or not. Most of them are not, and, and as a result, you know, you'll see, for the first time ever, I think you have about a three-point split between 538, which has a very promiscuous filtering process for polling, and the Real Clear Politics average, which has a very opaque but a very parsimonious set of standards for including polls in its average. That split is almost entirely driven by Democratic organizations, including some scam packs, pumping out really, really low-quality information that does not look anything like the private polling, either that Republicans have or what I'm hearing Democrats have. That is all extremely interesting, Luke. I think we'll end it there. But thank you very much for coming on to an Americano. And I hope, I know you're going to be very busy up until November 3rd, but I hope perhaps we'll get you in that week to um, unpack what actually happens. Well, I'll, I'll do my best. You may just get some sleep-deprived mumbling, but uh, always great to be with you, Trip. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. 